1. The People's Common Sense Medical Advisor in Plain English, OR. Medicine Simplified. By R.B. Pierce. M.D. Preface to the present edition The popular favor with which former editions of this work have been received has required the production of such a vast number of copies, that the original electrotype plates from which it has heretofore been printed, have been completely worn out. The book has been reproduced in London, England, where six editions have already been necessary to supply the demand for it, in order to continue its publication to meet the demand which is still active in this country. It has been necessary, inasmuch as the original electrotype plates have become worn and useless, to reset the work throughout. This has afforded the author an opportunity to carefully revise the book and rewrite many portions, that it may embody the latest discoveries and improvements in medicine and surgery. In performing this labor he has been greatly assisted by contributions and valuable aid kindly supplied by his staff of associate specialists in medicine and surgery who constitute the faculty of the Invalids Hotel and Surgical Institute. That part of the book treating of diseases and their remedies will be found to be thoroughly reliable, the prescriptions recommended therein having all received the sanction and endorsement of medical gentlemen of rare professional attainments and mature experience. The author, Buffalo, NY January. 1895. Preface to the first edition. Every family needs a common-sense medical advisor. The frequent inquiries from his numerous patients throughout the land, suggested to the author the importance and popular demand for a reliable work of this kind. Consequently, he has been induced to prepare and publish an extensive dissertation on physiology, hygiene, temperaments, diseases and domestic remedies. It is for the interest and welfare of every person not only to understand the means for the preservation of health, but also to know what remedies should be employed for the alleviation of the common ailments of life, the frequency of accidents of all kinds, injuries sustained by machinery, contusions, drowning, poisoning, fainting, etc. and also of sudden attacks of painful diseases, such as headache, affections of the heart and nerves, inflammation of the eye, ear and other organs, renders it necessary that non-professionals should possess sufficient knowledge to enable them to employ the proper means for speedy relief. To impart this important information is the aim of the author. Moreover, this volume treats of human temperaments, not only of their influence upon mental characteristics and bodily susceptibilities, but also of their vital and non-vital combinations, which transmit to the offspring either health, hardihood, and longevity, or feebleness, disease, and death. It clearly points out those temperaments which are compatible with each other and harmoniously blend, and also those which, when united in marriage, result in barrenness, or produce in the offspring imbecility, deformity, and idiocy. These matters are freely discussed from original investigations and clinical observations, thus rendering the work a true and scientific guide to marriage, while instruction is imparted for the care of the body. Those diseases alas how prevalent! are investigated which are sure to follow as a consequence of certain abuses, usually committed through ignorance. That these ills do exist is evident from the fact that the author is consulted by multitudes of unfortunate young men and women, who are desirous of procuring relief from the weaknesses and derangements incurred by having unwittingly violated physiological laws. Although some of these subjects may seem out of place in a work designed for every member of the family, yet they are presented in a style which cannot offend the most fastidious and with a studied avoidance of all language that can possibly displease the chaste, or disturb the delicate susceptibilities of persons of either sex. This book should not be excluded from the young, for it is eminently adapted to their wants, 
and imparts information without which millions will suffer in told misery. It is a false modesty which debars the youth of our land from obtaining such information, as its title indicates. The author aims to make this book a full and practical medical advisor. He proposes to express himself in plain and simple language, and, so far as possible, to avoid the employment of technical words, so that all his readers may readily comprehend the work, and profit by its perusal. Written as it is amid the many cares attendant upon a practice embracing the treatment of thousands of cases annually, and therefore containing the fruits of a rich and varied experience, some excuse exists for any literary imperfections which the critical reader may observe. The author, Buffalo, N.Y. July, 1875, Introductory Words, Health and Disease are Physical Conditions Upon Which Pleasure and Pain, Success and Failure, Depend. Every individual gain increases public gain. Upon the health of its people is based the prosperity of a nation, by it every value is increased, every joy enhanced. Life is incomplete without the enjoyment of healthy organs and faculties, for these give rise to the delightful sensations of existence. Health is essential to the accomplishment of every purpose, while sickness thwarts the best intentions and loftiest aims. We are continually deciding upon those conditions which are either the source of joy and happiness or which occasion pain and disease. Prudence requires that we should meet the foes and obviate the dangers which threaten us. By turning all our philosophy, science, and art, into practical common sense, the profession of medicine is no sinecure, its labors are constant, its toils unremitting, its cares unceasing. The physician is expected to meet the grim monster, break the jaws of death and pluck the spoil out of his teeth. His ear is ever attentive to entreaty, and within his faithful breast are concealed the disclosures of the suffering. Success may elate him, as conquest flushes the victor. Honors are lavished upon the brave soldiers who, in the struggle with the foe, have covered themselves with glory, and return victorious from the field of battle, but how much more brilliant is the achievement of those who overwhelm disease, that common enemy of mankind, whose victims are numbered by millions. Is it meritorious in the physician to modestly veil his discoveries, regardless of their importance? If he have light, why hide it from the world? Truth should be made as universal and health-giving as sunlight. We say, give light to all who are in darkness, and a remedy to the afflicted everywhere. We, as a people, are becoming idle, living in luxury and ease, and in the gratification of artificial wants. Some indulge in the use of food rendered unwholesome by bad cookery and think more of gratifying a morbid appetite than of supplying the body with proper nourishment. Others devote unnecessary attention to the display of dress and a genteel figure, yielding themselves completely to the sway of fashion. Such intemperance in diet and dress manifests itself in the general appearance of the unfortunate transgressor, and exposes his folly to the world. With little less precision than certain vices signify their presence by a tobacco-tainted breath, beer-bloated body, rum-emblazoned nose, and kindred manifestations, they cobble themselves instead of practicing self-denial, and appear to think that the chief end of life is gratification, rather than full endeavor, I purpose to express myself candidly and earnestly on all topics relating to health, and appeal to the common sense of the reader for justification, although it is my aim to simplify the work, and render it a practical common sense guide to the farmer, mechanic, mariner, and day laborer. Yet I trust that it may not prove less acceptable to the scholar, in its discussion of the problems of life. Not only does the method adopted in this volume of treating of the functions of the brain and nervous system present many new suggestions, 
in its application to hygiene, the management of disease, generation and the development and improvement of man, but the conclusions correspond with the results of the latest investigations of the world's most distinguished savants. My object is to inculcate the facts of science rather than the theories of philosophy. Unto us are committed important health trusts, which we hold, not merely in our own behalf, but for the benefit of others. If we discharge the obligations of our trusteeship, we shall enjoy present strength, fullness, and length of days, but if we fail in their performance, then inefficiency, incapacity, and sickness, will follow, the sequel of which is pain and death. Let us, then, prove worthy of this generous commission, that we may enjoy the sweetest of all pleasures, the delicious fruitage of honest toil and faithful obedience. Part I Physiology, Chapter I Biology In this chapter we propose to consider life in its primitive manifestations. Biology is the science of living bodies, or the science of life. Every organ of a living body has a function to perform, and physiology treats of these functions. Function means the peculiar action of some particular organ or part. There can be no vital action without change, and no change without organs. Every living thing has a structure, and anatomy treats of the structures of organized bodies. Several chapters of this work are devoted to physiological anatomy, which treats of the human organism and its functions. The beginning of life is called generation, its perpetuation, reproduction, by the former function. Individual life is ensured, by the latter, it is maintained, since nutrition sustains life. It has been pertinently termed perpetual reproduction. Latent life is contained in a small globule, a mere atom of matter, in the sperm cell. This element is something which, under certain conditions, develops into a living organism. The entire realm of nature teems with these interesting phenomena, thus manifesting that admirable adjustment of internal to external relations, which claims our profound attention. We are simply humble scholars, waiting on the threshold of nature's glorious sanctuary, to receive the interpretation of her divine mysteries. Some have conjectured that chemical and physical forces account for all the phenomena of life, and that organization is not the result of vital forces. Physical science cannot inform us what the beginning was, or how vitality is the result of chemical forces, nor can it tell us what transmutations will occur at the end of organized existence. This mysterious life principle eludes the grasp of the profoundest scientists and its presence in the world will ever continue to be an astonishing and indubitable testimony of divine power. The physical act of generation is accomplished by the union of two cells, and as this conjugation is known to be so generally indispensable to the organization of life, we may fairly infer that it is a universal necessity. Investigations with the microscope have destroyed the hypothesis of spontaneous generation. These show us that even the minutest living forms are derived from apparent organization. Generation so long as the vital principle remains in the sperm cell, it lies dormant. That part of the cell which contains this principle is called the spermatozoan, which consists of a flattened body, having a long appendage tapering to the finest point. If it be remembered that a line is the one-twelfth part of an inch in length, some idea may be formed of the extreme minuteness of the body of a human spermatozoan. When we state that it is from one-eight-hundred to one-six-hundred part of a line, and the filiform tail one-fifty of a line, in length, this life atom, which can be discerned only with a powerful magnifying glass, is perfectly transparent, and moves about by executing a vibrational motion with its long appendage. Within the speck of matter are hidden the multifarious forces which, under certain favorable conditions, result in organization. 
magnify this infinitesimal atom a thousand times, and no congeries of formative powers is perceived wherewith to work out the wonders of its existence, yet it contains the principle, which is the contribution on the part of the male toward the generation of a new being, the ovum or germ cell, is the special contribution on the part of the female for the production of another being, the human ovum, though larger than the spermatozoan, is also extremely small, measuring not more than from 120 to a 110 of a line, or from 1 240 to a 1 120 of an inch, in diameter, illustration, figure 1, human spermatozoan magnified about 3.800 diameters, vertical and lateral views of spermatozoa of man, CDEF development of spermatozoa within the vesicles of evolution, cell of the sponge resembling a spermatozoan, Vesicles of evolution from the seminal fluid of the dog in the parent cell. Single vesicles of different sizes. Human spermatozoan forming in its cell. Rupture of the cell and escape of the spermatozoan. The sperm and the germ cells contain the primary elements of all organic structures, and both possess the special qualities and conditions by which they may evolve organic beings. Every cell is composed of minute grains, within which vital action takes place. The interior of a cell consists of growing matter the exterior, of matter which has assumed its form and is less active, when the vital principle is communicated to it, the cell undergoes a rapid transformation, while this alteration takes place within the cell, deteriorating changes occur in the cell wall, although vital operations build up these structures, yet the animal and nervous functions are continually disintegrating, or wasting, them, throughout the animal kingdom. Germ cells present the same external aspect when carefully examined with the microscope. No difference can be observed between the cells of the flowers of the oak and those of the apple, but the cells of the one always produce oak trees, while those of the other always produce apple trees. The same is true of the germs of animals, there being not the slightest apparent difference. We are enabled to perceive how one cell should give origin to a dog, while another exactly like it becomes a man, for aught we know. The ultimate atoms of these cells are identical in physical character, at least we have no means of detecting any difference. Species. The term species is generally used merely as a convenient name to designate certain assemblages of individuals having various striking points of resemblance. Scientific writers, as a rule, no longer hold that what are usually called species are constantly unvarying and unchangeable quantities. Recent researches point to the conclusion that all species vary more or less, and in some instances, that the variation is so great that the limits of general specific distinctness are sometimes exceeded. Our space will not permit us to do more than merely indicate the two great fundamental ideas upon which the leading theories of the time respecting the origin of species are based. These are usually termed the doctrine of special creation and the doctrine of evolution. According to the doctrine of special creation, it is thought that species are practically immutable productions each species having a specific center where it was originally created, and from which it spread over a certain area until its further progress was obstructed by unfavorable conditions. The advocates of the doctrine of evolution hold, on the contrary, that species are not permanent and immutable, but that they are subject to modification, and that the existing forms of life are descendants by true generation of pre-existing forms. Most naturalists are now inclined to admit the general truth of the theory of evolution but they differ widely respecting the mode in which it occurred. The process of generation, the vital principle, represented in the sperm cell by a spermatozoan, must be imparted to a germ cell in order to effect impregnation. After touching each other, 
separate them immediately, and observe the result, if, with the aid of a powerful lens, we directly examine the spermatozoan, it will be perceived that, for a short time, it preserves its dimensions and retains all its material aspects, but it does not long withstand the siege of decay, and, having fulfilled its destiny, loses its organic characteristics, and begins to shrink, if we examine the fertilized germ, we discover unusual activity, the result of impregnation, organic processes succeed one another with wonderful regularity, as if wrought out by inexplicable intelligence, here begin the functions which constitute human physiology, generation requires that a spermatozoan be brought into actual contact with a germ that fecundation may follow, if a spermatic cell, or spermatozoan, together with several and impregnated ova, no matter how near to one another, if not actually touching, be placed on the concave surface of a watch crystal, and covered with another crystal, keeping them warm, and even though the vapor of the ova envelops it, no impregnation will occur, place the spermatozoan in contact with an ovum, and impregnation is instantly and perfectly accomplished, should this vitalizing power be termed nerve force, electricity, heat, or motion, it is known that these forces may be metamorphosed, for instance, nervous force may be converted into electricity, electricity into heat, and heat into motion, thus illustrating their affiliation and capability of transformation, but nothing is explained respecting the real nature of the vital principle, if we assert its identity with any of these forces, for who can reveal the true nature of any of these, or even of matter, alternate generation, in several insect families, the species is not wholly represented in the adult individuals of both sexes, or in their development, but, to complete the series, supplementary individuals, as it were, of one or of several preceding generations, are required, the son may not resemble the father, but the grandfather, and in some instances, the likeness reappears only in latter generations, Agassi states, alternate generation was first observed among the selkie, these are marine mollusks, without shells, belonging to the family Tunicata, they are distinguished by the curious peculiarity of being united together in considerable numbers so as to form long chains, which float in the sea, the mouth however being free in each, figure 2, the individuals thus joined in floating colonies produce eggs, but in each animal there is generally but one egg formed, which is developed in the body of the parent, and from which is hatched a little mollusk, figure 3, which remains solitary, and differs in many respects from the parent, this little animal, on the other hand, does not produce eggs, but propagates, by a kind of budding, which gives rise to chains already seen in the body of their parent and these again bring forth solitary individuals, etc., it therefore follows that generation in some animals require, to different bodies with intermediate ones, by means of which and their different modes of reproduction, a return to the original stock is effected, universality of ANIMAOCULAR life, living organisms are universally diffused over every part of the globe, the gentle zephyr wafts from flower to flower invisible, fructifying atoms, which quicken beauty and fragrance, giving the promise of a golden fruitage, to gladden and nourish a dependent world, nature's own sweet cunning invests all living things constraining into her service chemical affinities, arranging the elements and disposing them for her own benefit, in such numberless ways that we involuntarily exclaim, the course of nature is the art of God, the microscope reveals the fact that matter measuring only one one hundred twenty thousand of an inch diameter may be endowed with vitality, 
and that countless numbers of animalcules often inhabit a single drop of stagnant water. These monads do not vary in form, whether in motion or at rest. The life of one, even, is an inexplicable mystery to the philosopher. Ehrenberg writes, not only in the polar regions is there an uninterrupted development of active microscopic life, where larger animals cannot exist, but we find that those minute beings collected in the Antarctic expedition of Captain James Ross exhibit a remarkable abundance of unknown, and often most beautiful forms. Even the interior of animal bodies is inhabited by animalcules. They have been found in the blood of the frog and the salmon, and in the optic fluid of fishes. Organic beings are found in the interior of the earth, into which the industry of the miner has made extensive excavations, sunk deep shafts, and thus revealed their forms. Likewise, the smallest fossil organisms form subterranean strata many fathoms deep. Not only do lakes and inland seas abound with life, but also, from unknown depths, in volcanic districts, arise thermal springs which contain living insects. Were we endowed with a microscopic eye, we might see myriads of ethereal voyagers wafted by on every breeze, as we now behold drifting clouds of aqueous vapor, while the continents of Earth furnishes evidences of the universality of organic beings. Recent observations prove that animal life predominates amid the eternal night of the depths of the liquid ocean. The origin of life. The ancients, root in many of their ideas, referred the origin of life to divine determination. The thought was crudely expressed, but well represented, in the following verse, then God smites his hands together, and strikes out a soul as a spark, into the organized glory of things, from the deeps of the dark, according to a Greek myth. Prometheus formed a human image from the dust of the ground, and then, by fire stolen from heaven, animated it with a living soul. Spontaneous generation once held its sway, and now the idea of natural evolution is popular. Some believe that the impenetrable mystery of life is evolved from the endowments of nature, and build their imperfect theory on observations of her concrete forms and their manifestations, to which all our investigations are restricted, but every function indicates purpose. Every organism evinces intelligent design, and all proclaim a divine power. Something cannot come out of nothing. With reason and philosophy, chance is an impossibility. We, therefore, accept the display of wisdom in nature as indicative of the designs of God. Thus, has he written his claims for our profoundest admiration and homage all over every object that he has made. If you ask, is there any advantage in considering the phenomena of nature as the result of divine volition? We answer that this belief corresponds with the universally acknowledged ideas of accountability, for, with a wise, and efficient cause, we infer there is an intelligent creation, and the desire to communicate, guide and bless, is responded to by man, who loves, obeys, and enjoys, nothing is gained by attributing to nature vicegerent forces, is it not preferable to say that she responds to intelligent, loving omnipotence? Our finiteness is illustrated by our initiation into organized being, emerging from a rayless atom, to diminutive for the sight. We gradually develop and advance to the maturity of those conscious powers, the exercise of which furnishes indubitable evidence of our immortality. We are pervaded with invisible influences, which, like the needle of the compass trembling on its pivot, point us to immortality as our ultimate goal, wherein the sunny clime of love, even in a spiritual realm of joy and happiness, we may eternally reign with him who is all in all. Chapter II. Physiological Anatomy. The bones. All living bodies are made up of tissues. There is no part, no organ, however soft and yielding, 
or hard and resisting, which has not this peculiarity of structure. The bones of animals, as well as their flesh and fat, are composed of tissues, and all alike made up of cells. When viewed under a microscope, each cell is seen to consist of three distinct parts, a nucleus, or dark spot, in the center of the cell, around which lies a mass of granules, called the nucleus, and this, in turn, is surrounded with a delicate, transparent membrane, termed the envelope. Each of the granules composing the nucleus assimilates nourishment, thereby growing into an independent cell, which possesses a triple organization similar to that of its parent, and in like manner reproduces other cells. Illustration, Figure 4, Nucleate Cell, from Gober, 1, Periphery of the Cell, or Cell Wall, 2, Nucleus, 3, Nucleus in the Center, a variety of tissues enters into the composition of an animal structure. Yet their differences are not always distinctly marked, since the characteristics of some are not unlike those of others. We shall notice, however, only the more important of the tissues. The areolar, or connective tissue, is a complete network of delicate fibers, spread over the body, and serves to bind the various organs and parts together. The fibrous and serous tissues are modifications of the areolar. The nervous tissue is of two kinds, the gray, which is pulpy and granulated and the white fibrous tissue. The adipose tissue is an extremely thin membrane, composed of closed cells which contain fat. It is found principally just beneath the skin, giving it a smooth, plump appearance. The cartilaginous tissue consists of nucleate cells, and, with the exception of bone, is the hardest part of the animal frame. The osseous tissue, or bone, is more compact and solid than the cartilaginous, for it contains a greater quantity of lime. The muscular tissue is composed of bundles of fibers, which are enclosed in a cellular membrane. Various opinions have been entertained in regard to the formation, or growth, of bone. Some anatomists have supposed that all bone is formed in cartilage, but this is not true, for there is an intramembranous, as well as an intracartilaginous, formation of bone, as may be seen in the development of the cranial bones, where the gradual calcification takes place upon the inner layers of the fibrous coverings. Intracartilaginous deposit is found in the vicinity of the blood vessels. Within the cartilaginous canals, also, there are certain points first observed in the shafts of long bones, called centers of ossification. These points are no sooner formed than the cartilage corpuscles arrange themselves in concentric zones, and, lying in contact with one another, become very compact. As ossification proceeds, the cup-shaped cavities are converted into closed interstices of bone, with extremely thin lamellae or layers. These, however, soon increase in density, and no blood vessels can be observed within them. Illustration, Figure 7. Vertical section of cartilage near the surface of ossification. Ordinary appearance of the temporary cartilage. Portion of the same more highly magnified. The cells beginning to form into concentric zones. Portion more magnified. The ossification is extending in the intercellular spaces and the rows of cells are seen resting in the cavities so formed, the nuclei being more separated than above. Portion of the same more highly magnified, the bony plates form the boundaries of the haversian, or nutritive canals of the bones. In the second stage of ossification, the cartilage corpuscles are converted into bone, becoming flattened against the osseous lamellae already formed. They crowd upon one another so as to entirely obliterate the lines that distinguish them, and, Simultaneously with these changes, a calcareous deposit takes place upon their interior. Bones grow by additions to their ends and surfaces. In the child, 
their extremities are separated from the body of the bone by layer of cartilage, and the cancellated, or cellular structure, which remains for a time in the interior, represents the early condition of the ossifying substances. The bones contain more earthy matter in their composition than any other part of the human body, being firm, hard, and of a lime color. They compose the skeleton or framework, and, when united by natural ligaments, form what is known as the natural skeleton. When they are wired together, they are called an artificial skeleton. The number of bones in the human body is variously estimated, for those regarded as single by some anatomists are considered by others to consist of several distinct pieces. There are 200 distinct bones in the human skeleton besides the teeth. These may be divided into those of the head, trunk, upper extremities, and lower extremities. Illustration, Figure 10. The bones of the skull separated. Frontal, only half is seen. Parietal, occipital, only half is seen. Temporal, nasal, malar. Superior maxillary upper jaw, lacrimal. Inferior maxillary lower jaw. Between and a part of the sphenoid or wedge-shaped bone, is seen, another bone assisting to form the skull, but not here seen, is called the ethmoid sieve-like, from being full of holes, and is situated between the sockets of the eyes, forming the roof of the nose, the bones of the head are classed as follows, 8 belonging to the cranium, and 14 to the face, the bones of the cranium are the occipital, to parietal, to temporal, frontal, sphenoid, and ethmoid. Those composing the face are, the two nasal, to superior maxillary, to lacrimal, to malar to palate, to inferior turbinate, vomer, and inferior maxillary. The cranial bones are composed of two dense plates, between which there island in most places a cancellated or cellular tissue. The external plate is fibrous, the internal, compact and vitreous. The skull is nearly oval in form, convex externally, the bone being much thicker at the base than elsewhere and an island in every respect admirably adapted to resist any injury to which it may be exposed, thus affording ample protection to the brain substance which it envelops. The internal surface of the cranium presents eminences and depressions for lodging the convolutions of the brain, and numerous furrows for the ramifications of the blood vessels. The bones of the cranium are united to one another by ragged edges called sutures, which are quite distinct in the child but which in old age are nearly effaced. Some authorities suppose that by this arrangement the cranium is less liable to be fractured by blows, others think that the sutures allow the growth of these bones, which takes place by a gradual osseous enlargement at the margins. The bones of the face are joined, 